Um, I guess you could turn in your Bibles to Exodus 19, which is page 52 if you use in one of the, the books in the seat. While you do that, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll plant the seed of an idea that <clears throat> I hope will um, surface meaningfully later on. I was listening uh, to the radio yesterday. It's a call-in uh, about marriage, and uh, it got me thinking. The things that draw someone, draw a couple towards marriage are often different than the things that preserve a couple in marriage. Now, I'm not saying that what attracts you towards marriage becomes irrelevant or is the opposite of what sustains you in marriage. I I don't mean that at all. I mean, the things that seem first sometimes as you're in the Western tradition, as you're dating or courting and falling for one another, the things that seem first... Uh, kind of shift to second or third or fourth on the other side of marriage. And the things that you may be dating didn't even appreciate at all uh, rise uh, to prominence on the other side. Strange things, you know. You're dating, and she'll say, you know, he he loves to listen. He listens. Two years later, on the other side of marriage, it it is, uh, he never talks. (laughs) Why doesn't he ever talk? And meanwhile, he's saying, she never stops talking, (laughs) right? But before, this was this courting, uh, dating bliss of, you know, I don't like, I'm kind of shy, and she likes to talk. It works out great. Um... It changes. And in the middle, I mean, the hinge is uh, the wedding, the vows. It all hinges around the vows of marriage. In in this radio program, uh, a person called in, and the person was expressing uh, grief and disappointment that the other partner in the marriage, the other spouse, had chosen to uh, take one of the contractual obligations is what they call it on the radio. Contractual obligations of marriage that simply said, that, that part is not for me. I just don't want to do that part. And the host, the radio host, kind of uh, eventually you know, took over the conversation and is what they do and, and <clears throat> said this. He said, people, speaking to the radio audience, marriage is a contract. He says, you don't want to hear that It's not romantic, but marriage is a contract. I might say as a minister, it's a covenant. A covenant's like a relational contract, but he's right enough. He said there's things that you have to do. You have contractual obligations one to another. If the marriage is going to persist in a healthy way, those contractual obligations must be met and carried out. And he said... This is the part I found thoughtful. He says, it sounds so unromantic for me to say marriage is a contract. But he said, the truth of the matter is, a good marriage contract makes in the long term for a more romantic marriage. And it's one of those things you hear where you're like, do I agree with that? You know, just driving. Do I agree with that? And I think I do. I think 
you know, before marriage, there's a certain kind of thing we call love, and it's, there's a lot of infatuation and motion in it. It's very dynamic. On the long side of a marriage that's been faithfully maintained is a steady love. But at this point in my life, I long for that more. I hope for that. It's more romantic to me now because it's greater good. It's less potential. It's more realized. It's more sacrificial. And it's more about the other person. And the contract fights for it. Now, I want to I put this in front of you this morning because essentially what is going to happen in the reading this morning is the Lord is going to propose to Israel. The Bible makes no bones about it. The Bible is very comfortable speaking of Israel as being the bride of God, the wife of God. Well, here is the proposal. I can't imagine God getting down on his knee. He doesn't do that. But he does propose. And it's, it's here in the texts. Um, and he's wanting to bring them from a place of where they have enjoyed him but are not contractually obligated to him to the other side. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. Um, and maybe it'll surface in a, in a useful way. I want to read, I just want to read nine verses. Next year, we'll pick up at the same place in the Bible and we'll finish the book of Exodus. But here's, um, here's the nine verses. It's the 19th chapter of Exodus, uh, verse one. On the third new moon, After the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will... This is the proposal. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came down and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Okay, if we just step all the way back to verses, uh, I'll spend a little bit of time on 1 through 3. Really, I think the heart of of the teaching is 4 through 6, but a little bit of time on 1 through 3. And if you go back there, it says, "On on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, some translations say, on that very day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. The wilderness of Sinai is simply the description of the terrain around the base of the mountain, okay? This is chapter 19 of Exodus, in a book of 40 chapters, 
the people do not move from this spot for the rest of the book. Okay, it takes them about two to three months to get here, and they remain here for the balance of a year. So the rest of the book is in this camp. What's interesting, though, is is the way that the writer refers it. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land, on that very day, it's a precise measurement of time and a precise point. He says, on that day, on that very day, there's a sense that, you know, when they were wandering through the wilderness on the way to the mountain, this is the writer's way of saying they were never wandering. They were always exactly where the Lord wanted them, to an exact destination, and they arrived there exactly at the time God intended them to arrive. There's great precision in, this, in, in, this, in the spirit of, of this scripture here. The Hebrew people thought uh, the tradition, we don't exactly know how to measure on the third new moon. It's difficult to have an opinion. The Jewish belief was it took seven weeks, 49 days, 48, 49 days to get here. And then the, the next day they get the law and they measure that distance of 50 days and they celebrate it. The 50th day from Passover is Pentecost. That's this day. So there's the Hebrew people saw the precision of God and they kind of encased it in, in their own witness that, that in a very careful way, God led them at exactly the right time to the base of the mountain for this next thing. It's the way, that, and it's a sense of the way they connect the two. They count from Passover to get to Pentecost. Those two ideas are connected. I'd sort of say in our life, there's times we feel like we're wandering. Um, and then there's times, for those of you who have been in the Lord for a while, you'll say like on that, <laughs> I felt like I was wandering, but I arrived on that very day with the Lord somewhere. And you realize the whole time the Lord was precise. Well, we get to the third verse, and I want to, um, let me just put on my teaching hat for a second, okay? This is kind of a teaching moment. Um, but it's interesting, and it, it does go somewhere, I promise. In the ESV, now it's different in the NIV. The NIV, or some other translations, it may be different in other translations, in the ESV, verse 3 shows up in the middle of a sentence. And to the English eye, one cannot figure out why is this now a verse 3. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Why does while Moses went up to God warrant verse 3? Now, in some other translations, what they've done is they've They've adapted the translation from Hebrew to give this point a little bit more significance, either making it the beginning of a new paragraph or something like that. Let me just say something about, this is the teachy part. The verses, the numbers in your book, were not assigned by God. So God did not say, you know, one, two. He didn't do that, okay? The verse points are a contribution of man. So they're not inerrant, they are thoughtful. Okay, but there's, they're not inerrant. And their thoughtfulness is based upon the language in which the book was authored. So there's times when you're reading something in the English, and, you, and there's multiple times in the Bible, you're reading something, you're like, why is the verse point here? Well, it's because in the Greek or the Hebrew, something, something significant happened, more significant than your English eyes could appreciate. Okay, and this is the case. Like in the middle of our ESV translation, it's just showing up in the middle of the sentence. 
But in the Hebrew, something interesting is happening. You see the phrase, while Moses went up to God? The next phrase is, the Lord called to him from the mountain. There, it's a dual, it's almost saying the, the same thing twice. Moses going up to God, and God is speaking to Moses from the mountain. Okay? It's a parallelism, is the way that they call it. So you have this, while Moses was up to God, God called down to Moses. And then you have the word saying, and then you have another parallelism. You have, thus say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Okay, that's not two tasks. That's not two chores. That's not two people. It's the same thing twice. It's a parallelism. So you have a couplet up top. Moses went up. God spoke down. Then you have the word saying, and then you have a couplet underneath. House of Jacob, house of Israel, people of Israel. And in the Hebrew, the syllables matter. Okay, so there's a rhythm. So the couplet up top, each phrase, Moses went up as ten syllables, God spoke down as ten syllables. And you have the word saying, and then you have the house of Jacob, that phrase is ten, seven syllables, and the next phrase is seven syllables. So you've got a couplet of tens, the word saying, and a couplet of sevens. I'm saying in the English, we miss it. But in the Hebrew, it's poetry. It's poetry inside of prose. Do you remember way back, some of you don't have to go way back, way back in ninth grade when you read Romeo and Juliet. And you learned about Shakespearean poetry. Phrases like iambic pentameter, which I don't really know what that means anymore, but it was an answer on a test. There's a ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. That's what I remember. It's kind of a curvy line, a straight line on, on the rhythm of a poet. And then they said there's a Shakespearean sonnet, which was alternating rhyming lines. So A, B, A, B, you remember this? C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G. That was a Shakespearean sonnet. And then you would go and you would apply these principles you had learned. You'd go to the text of Romeo and Juliet and you'd be reading. And all of Romeo and Juliet seemed kind of hard to grasp because old English and it's poetry, but it doesn't rhyme. And so... The ninth grade is going, this isn't poetry, it doesn't rhyme, and, and it's all happening. But then you get to a moment in the play where Shakespeare wants to say something important, and you get the rhythm and the rhyme. It's his way of saying, like, the story's happening, but this, this, pay attention to. That's what's happening in verse 3. You can't see it in the English, but in the Hebrew, there's rhythm and the way the Hebrews told poetry was the way they arranged thought. They, never, they didn't rhyme so much as artfully arranged thinking, which is awesome because Hebrew poetry then translates into every language. So here you have carefully arranged these couplets with their syllables. If you were the Hebrew reader walking in, this would be, it would, it would be a divine prelude saying, this, this poetry is a way of saying, pay attention to the next words. And this is what God says. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. God proposes. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. He brings to their memory his salvation. You remember I saved you. 
And then he says, and how I bore you on eagles' wings to myself and how I've provided for you. So, I mean, this whole series has been on the provision of God. Last year, we talked about the salvation of God, Exodus 1 through 15, and then we've picked up on the provision of God. He brings that back to their mind. They're at the mountain, and he brings back to their remembrance, you saw how I saved you, and you've seen how I've provided for you. He says, let's, let's enter into covenantal agreement with one another. Let's belong to one another. That's what he's saying. He's saying, here's how we'll belong to one another. I will make you my treasured possession. You know how I've saved. You know that the whole earth is mine. You know how I've provided. I'm going to make you among all peoples my treasured possession. Like, that's God saying, that's what I'll do for you. And for, for them, he's saying, you indeed obey my commandments. Now, <clears throat> when I hear that, and I, I think we, you might share my ears when I think, now if you will only indeed obey my commandments, part of my mind goes, well, that's not a, that's a tall offer. I mean, we know from the reading of Scripture that the Israelites do not do well obeying the commandments. In fact, when they disobey the commandments so much, the Lord ends up using this, he calls them an unfaithful wife. So it's to point, point at moments like this and say, to allow the marital idea to be present. He ends up talking to them as though they were an unfaithful wife. And so we know that it was hard for them to follow the commandments of God, but, but I don't want us to think negatively here, like, oh, well, here it is, there's the gotcha. You know, I'll be your treasured possession. All, it's not as though God's saying, all you have to do is be perfect for the rest of your life. Okay, sometimes we can hear that. That's not the spirit of God. A better way to think of it is the way that as you're falling for somebody and dating or courting them towards marriage, don't you willingly enter into that covenant? Do you ever think about the words of that covenant? That's hard. I promise to love, honor, cherish, protect. Well, I mean, I usually love, I often honor, I sometimes cherish. And in case of emergency, I suppose I will protect. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not trying to, like, beat myself down. I think we're, we're together on this. A lot of marriages don't have a lot of cherishing in them. I'm saying that the marriage covenant that you and I and those of you who are married, that you have spoken, if you were going to be really careful about it, you might have not done so well. I mean, usually we, re- we might reduce it to, well, I haven't cheated on her. The vow said more than that, for better or for worse, richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Whew. I mean, I'm not a cherisher. I have to really work. Like when she's sick, I resent it. I'm like, rub some dirt in it, girl. We got a house to move. Uh, when I'm sick, she's a nurturer. When she's sick, it's costing her. Again? You vomited again? Are you crazy? Can you keep it down? 
I'm just saying, okay, that what we've said, as you court in your day towards marriage, you long to make those vows. You want to make those vows. You so want to be on the other side, inside this covenant of love. You, you're ready. That's the only person for you. That's the person. You're going to say really big words. Massive contractual obligation. And you're going to do it willingly and lovingly and wantingly. That's here. You don't see God twisting their arm. He says, you saw how I rescued you from oppression. You were slaves. Insignificant slaves. They were killing your firstborn sons as they came out of the womb. And I flew in and saved you. And I fed you and I've cared for you and I've brought you all the way to my bosom. You see how I love you. They want, they want to enter into this covenant. That's what happens. Moses goes down in verse 7. Moses speaks to the elders. The elders speak with the people. The people go, yeah, we're going to do that. Let's do that. And Moses says, we're in. There's no, there's no wrangling. There's no, ah, let's read the fine print. There's no, I don't think God has our best in mind. None of that is happening right now. God has done, God has courted them to the altar of his mountain and has proposed to them, and it is an act of love. And they see it for what it is, and they agree. I want to point out, by the way, the sequence. The sequence matters to me. Did you, just think of the whole story. They're in slaves in Egypt. God rescues them. God cares for them. He feeds them. He gives them water. He gives them manna. He pulls them all the way through the desert to the mountain. And then he proposes to them. That's when the idea of the covenant really comes to surface, is right now. Did you ever notice that, that God doesn't bring up the idea of the obedient covenant when they're slaves? Like when they're oppressed and they're crying out and they're in an extreme situation. God doesn't reach down then and say, you know what, I, I can save you out of this. I got frogs and fire all ready to go. All you need to do is be obedient. You be obedient and I'll do it. He doesn't do that. The sequence matters. God does not wait until their, their, their throats are parched and they have nothing to drink to say, you know what? There's a rock around here with a lot of water. I will give it to you. I will tell you where it is if all you do is fix your life up. Just fix your life up. God does not do that. God saves and provides and courts us into obedience. That is the order. This is the order. God does not come to us and say, Jesus could be yours if all you do is straighten your life up. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is no gospel at all. Jesus saves, puts his spirit in us, and because we are affectionately drawn to him, the fruit of that is obedience. That's the nature of the gospel. The nature of the true gospel of Jesus Christ is that your fruit of obedience is the natural result of your faith and love in Jesus Christ. Not the other way around. And we, we get it backwards, we give it backwards. So we go to people and we put in front of them, get your life right and then you can get Jesus. Anathema. You saw how I rescued you. How I have provided for you. 
how I've cared for you, how I've taken you close, close to me. This is to be an eternal relationship. And the way this relationship is known is by you wanting to be like me, the one perfect God of the universe, and me holding on to you with my strong arm. You should want it. You should want to be obedient to God. If you don't, I suppose you can just leave. You cannot be his. You could be one of the ones who speaks, I don't. You can go back. I'm saying, when you understand the gospel well, you realize that God has carefully led you to a place where you want to be like him. The sequence matters. I just don't want us to miss the sequence. God's salvation and his provision is demonstrated for us, demonstrated in front of our righteousness. And then he allows that to be part of our life, which gives birth to righteousness. I just don't want you to think that the New Testament is all that different. This is page 52 in your book, and it's here. God has always been the same. Okay. I want to look at the end of verse 5, because there's an interesting phrase where it's kind of a love-hate relationship with humankind. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You will be his treasured possession. You'll be his chosen ones. You're chosen. His treasured possession. All the world. There's a lot of people in the world, but you, you're his treasure. So there's a good in that, right? There certainly is a uniqueness of God's affection that we feel because there's, there's truth in this. You come to Christ and you're his. And before you come to Christ, you're not his. There's importance in that. There's importance in saying that the salvation and the provision of God in an eternal nature, the eternal way, is not ubiquitously and universally applied to all of mankind. It may be ubiquitously and universally available, but it is not applied to all of mankind, but to those who covenant with him. That's truth. And there's something good about that when we become Christian. But I'd say on the other side, this is, this is a crease point. Like, so my friends who are not followers of Christ, they'd point to this and say, this is exactly what I don't like about you guys. Why are you chosen and I'm not chosen? What's so special about you? Like, all, though all the world is his, he picks them. Why not them or them or me? You see how it's, in one sense, it's a hug, and in another sense, it's kind of a stiff arm. It paints a picture of, what, does God not care about the, although all, does this sound this way? Is this the sound? The whole world is mine. You, (laughs) you I'm going to love. I think people hear that, I think sometimes people inside the community have a distorted sense of what it means to be chosen. 
So they feel this exclusionary hug when the reality is if they just read the next verse, it would iron it all out. So he says, you'll be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And he says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. Now he did not say... He does not say, you shall be to me a kingdom with priests. He doesn't say that. He says, you shall be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom with priests, right? That, that would have understood that very naturally. Here, you know, here we are Israelites, and there's going to be, some of us will be priests. That's not what he said. He said, you, all of you, will be to me a kingdom of priests. It's a big difference. What, what is a priest? I'm not a priest, so... You, I'm not, in our Protestant faith, we believe that since Christ, there is no need for a priest. Okay, Christ was the great high priest. Because this is what a priest did. A priest was an intercessor and a mediator, an arbitrator and a go-between, between God and man. That's what a priest was. Meaning, if you had a problem, you would go tell the priest. And then the priest would ascend and go tell God, and then God would tell the priest, and the priest would come back to you. Do you see how he's a mediator? This is what Moses is doing all through this account. He's going up the hill, say, what do you want, God? God says, he goes down the hill. He says, this is what God said. They confer. They say, okay, we'll do it. We're in on this. He goes back up the hill. He says, they're in. God says, okay, go tell them this. And he goes up, and he goes down, and he goes up, and he's down. Finally, God says, let's make you a tabernacle so you don't have to keep climbing You can just stay. You're an old man. So they build a tabernacle. And God comes down into the tabernacle. And rather than Moses going up and down and up and down, he just goes in and out. Much more convenient. So the people come to the entrance of the tabernacle and say, we've got a problem. And he goes in and he says, here's the deal. And the Lord says, "Mm." he goes back out. He says this. That is a mediator. They cannot know God without a priest. Okay? When they do something wrong, they bring a sacrifice. I found out that I am sinful. I'm bringing this to atone for my sin. They bring a sacrifice. They put the sacrifice in the hands of the priest. The priest evaluates the sacrifice, prepares the sacrifice, puts it on the pyre, burns the sacrifice. The aroma goes up to the Lord. Though it is acceptable, the priest, therefore, who has mediated for the person in the sacrifice, turns to them and says, your sins have been atoned for. Payment has been made. The priest is the mediator of reconciliation, of redemption, and of revelation for the people. Now we, I'm a pastor, not a priest, because Christ has been our high priest. The writer of Hebrews says, day after day, time after time, priest after priest, the Hebrews had to keep bringing sacrifice Always bring in sacrifice and the priests, generation after generation of priests dying one after the other, they would continually mediate in a flawed, and not flawed, but fractional sort of way with animals. They would be doing this act of mediation. He said, no, when Jesus came, he did it once and for all. He has been our ultimate mediator, our high priest. He's interceded for us. He's done it and it is finished. Which is why you and I can cry out in the name of Christ and God will hear us. It's why we can say, Lord, forgive us. And he will forgive us because we have a mediator standing at the right hand of the Father who even now is on our side. 
And they're going to be a kingdom of priests. To who? If you're all priests, who are you mediating for? All the world. The promise of God to Abraham was, I'll bless you, I'll make you in a great nation, and you will be a blessing to all the world. So what starts off feeling exclusive ends up becoming highly, globally intrusive. You will be for me a treasured possession. All the world is mine. I'm going to make you a treasured possession. I'm choosing you to do what? To make you into a holy nation and a kingdom of priests so that the whole world would know of my glory. So that you might intercede and mediate and go between and climb the mountain and come back down for everyone else. It's the strange idea of God's salvation and then his provision and then he covenants with us. And in the covenant, what comes out is that we are going to be God's provision for the next people. This is what Peter says. This is in 1 Peter. This is many, many years later. It's the other end of the book. Christ has suffered and died, been resurrected and ascended. The Holy Spirit has come in and the ministry of the church is already well underway with 1 Peter. I want you to tell me what passage of the Bible Peter is thinking of when he says this to the church. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. What page is he on? Peter is thinking of Exodus 19, of this marriage proposal. Now listen to what he says. Okay, but you're a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. That is what we are called to do. We we understand being chosen well. Okay, If you want to understand what does it mean to be chosen, I would say this. See yourself as God's beachhead for another people. He's chosen you to get the gospel deeper, mediate that gospel, bring that gospel, proclaim you who were once in darkness but have now been brought into the glorious light, you bring that light into darkness. That's what he's saying. Look at the end of, well, you don't have to look. I'm just reading it to you. First Peter, at the end of it, he says this, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. I mean, the whole thing just reeks of exodus. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He's saying, indeed, follow the commandments of God. You should want to. Look like God. If you're going to speak about God, look like God. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that's the other nations, honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. You are God's provision for the world. God has not extracted you from the world as a trophy to put on his shelf. God has come into this world and is using you to make his glories known. My my experience and what I find to be the case is that uh, our salvation experience, 
for those of us who come to Christ, that a salvation experience feels highly personal, sometimes private, but very personal, very first-person oriented. What happened to me? And then, especially in this late age, we're very into our story, my story. So God, what God's doing with me throughout my life. My trials and tribulations where I learn of his provision for me. This is how God describes it. You saw how I rescued you, how I carried you on eagle's wings. The covenant of God is maturing them to be not about them, but about others. Come now. Come to me. Seek to live like me, and I will make you into a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, because all the world is mine. Mary, the story of me just doesn't fit in that. And I want to I wanna challenge you. I can't just say, you know, I just started to think, you can't say to a child, well, I do. It just doesn't work. I can't just say, grow up. It is not, that's not like a magic word. I, I think I can say, this is a mark of maturing in the faith of realizing that what has happened to you is not just for you. Of really awakening to the idea that God has included you in a kingdom of priests because all the world is his. It's a big world and a lot of people. And you're a beachhead into some group of people. Every one of us knows. Every one of us knows someone who might respond to the glorious light of God. May we be that. Let me pray. Lord, your, your goodness and your kindness and the way you've saved us and provided for us, Lord, is complemented by your goodness and the kindness and the way you call us to obedience and send us out to the world. <clears throat> Lord, I pray you'd make us a, a good, healthy reflection of you so that the world, when they see us, even, even those who see us in, in the midst of persecution say evil about us, Lord, that they would nonetheless see our good deeds and be called to glorify you on the day of your visitation. Lord, what a tall order that we should be righteous in the midst of our evildoers who are working evil against us in the hope that they might see your light, Lord. Help us to be ambassadors of your reconciliation in such a profound way. I pray for each believer here, each follower of Christ here, that they might not hold on to their chosen nature or their speciality in you as though it was a gift to us to be uh, put on a shelf, Lord, but that we might find purpose in it, that we might see that you are our provision and we are your provision. I pray you bless us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.